Welcome back to this week's episode of Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I'm here with my buddy, Joe Hagen. Hey, Joe. So nice to hear your voice. You actually had a cool, little bit off news week, right? You interviewed a great. Well, it depends on uh, where you stand uh, in terms of the greatness. But yes, um, I did a freelance job for the Los Angeles Times. They asked me if I wanted to interview Bob Weir. Now... If you're a person of a certain vintage, that name will immediately pop I- into your mind and go into all kinds of swirly psychedelic directions, because that's, of course, the singer, the the only sort of last surviving member of, you know, the front men to the Grateful Dead. So, uh, you know, I took that opportunity. He has a new record coming out. And so I went to talk to him and he was fantastic. Uh, he's a model, really. Uh, for aging, right? He's on TikTok. Why? Yeah, he's on he's on TikTok, and he's always doing these exercise routines. Like the last guy you expect uh. in the world to be showing you an exercise routine, but he's like, you know, he's doing his swinging the kettleballs, the kettlebells. Whoa! So he's like prop. You're not. He's not like just taking a power walk. He's properly. He's properly exercising. In fact, he was in like Men's Health magazine talking about his exercise routine. So. I want to know about what his, what the routine is. Well, one of them is he times himself running up a hill over and over again, which is sort of like... Oh, my... Is he my soulmate? <laughs> Am I getting married to the wrong person? Have you seen his mustache? You might want to reconsider. I okay. mean, he's... Mustaches feel impermanent. They, that can be changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have to convince him. It's sort of become his new calling card is this giant sort of, um, as I describe it in the piece, Yosemite Sam-sized mustache. He's got this big, giant Civil War mustache. Mm, okay. So it's not for everybody. I'm yeah, really yeah. Interested. Well, but he's um, he's great, interesting guy. And, uh, you know, that you can read all about it in the Los Angeles Times. Um, so that's been, you know, a little bit of a upbeat in the week. Uh, as I'm contending, you know, most of my time is spent uh, surfing the news, as we do. And um, I would say recently, both literally and figuratively, I've been experiencing a thaw. We had a big ice storm uh, in my neck of the woods in New York uh, last week, and everything was frozen. Lots of trees were broken down, kind of a classic ice storm. And uh, I'm also experiencing, as I read the news, a certain thawing in the kind of national paralysis over, you know, our political division. Mm. I'm not saying we're going in the right direction in all cases, and there's lots of caveats. In fact, it's probably all caveats. But we have noticed, as you and I have read the news over the last week, we're hearing a lot about January 6th again. We talked about it on this podcast a few weeks ago because it was the anniversary, of course, of January 6th, this terrible day. But this week, we've had this very unusual kind of uh, vision of guys like Mike Pence, the former vice president, uh, you know, the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, both of them going out on a limb, sticking their necks out to say, not okay, January 6th, not okay, right? And of course, this was a response to the GOP putting out this ridiculous, insane (laughs) statement earlier in the week, saying that it was a legitimate uh, political discourse. So, I don't know. I drew like I, it, I could see cracks in the ice, you know, a little light was coming through. Now, maybe it means something and maybe it doesn't. And that's the sort of order of the conversation that people are having right now. Well, I think there's something very interesting there. And obviously we saw Mike Pence like lightly break with former President Trump this week, which I gave a hearty LOL to because 
it is expedient for him to do the least right now. And he's definitely doing the least. And he had many, many years to do much more than what he's doing right now and, and presently to do much more than he's doing right now. He's still not opting to do that. Um, he's obviously seen some polling that suggests he should break with President Trump, which I would say, like, maybe that thaws me that there's some polling out there that says he shouldn't lean into Trump. And that's really interesting to me. If I if I were reporting on this at this moment, and this makes me kind of want to report on this at this moment, uh, that polling or, or those conversations that people around Pence are having right now saying lean away from Trump, that's a very meaty topic. Uh, and it surprises me. Right. What was the private information that sort of sends them out into the spotlight to say something that they know is going to be like, there's going to be blowback. You're going to have Trump on your ass. It's fascinating because, and and I'm coming at this as sort of an, an insider, outsider, an outsider, insider, because I know these people, I know these conversations, I know the landscape, but I don't know specifically as a reporter anything about these conversations. So I'm I'm in it and out of it. Um, and I just want to preface this by saying I'm not saying any like privileged information here. But I think what's fascinating to me is that like if the data, the polling, the numbers, the conversations suggested Trump and Trumpism is the way to success in 2024, no one could do that better than Prince, right? He was his vice president. He was with him every step of the way. They were pretty much lockstep and on, on places where perhaps they weren't quite as lockstep. Like he had real plausible deni- deniability either way because he was silent. And so I think it, if, if it were politically expedient for him to lean into Trumpism, he would have the best shot of leaning all the way there. And he's choosing the opposite. And that leads me to believe a political animal like Mike Pence is getting some information that that is not the successful thing to do at this point in the election. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. But also, it would be hard for him to lean into it since Trumpism, by virtue of January 6th, turned into a, you know, hang Mike Pence, right? He's the betrayer of of Trumpism. And he's never really come out and, you know, pushed back too hard until now. And we also see Mitch McConnell doing the same, right? He's come out and say, no, this was not legitimate political discourse. This was a violent insurrection, right? So suddenly you have got these two hugely prominent but also institutional GOP guys pushing back against the Ronna McDaniels sort of version of the GOP, which is the Trump GOP. And they're saying, no, right? We're not going to own this. We're not going to take it that far. We're not going to try to own January 6th as some sort of political positive for to like rally the base or whatever. And it, it did make me think to your polling thing that they're thinking about the midterms. They're thinking about what the GOP wants to stand for when it goes out there and asks for votes from like suburban 
people. They're thinking there's going to be, a, as we've talked about on this podcast also, the January 6th commission will be spitting out a report later this year, you know, early in the fall, a couple of months before the midterms. Here they've got inflation at an all-time historic high, which is the biggest hammer in the world to hammer the Democrats on. But the Democrats may have, hey, the guy you built your entire party around, Donald Trump, we've now can look at the writing on the wall and he's exactly what it looks like, a, a criminal, right? And all these people who are building their you know, political identities around him are suddenly going to be holding the bag of just crime. So anyway, I'm just thinking about, obviously, I don't think Pence and Mitch uh, McConnell are like, uh, had some kind of like glowing, warm change of heart about democracy, because certainly they didn't. But that's my read on it. I think you're right. And I think maybe what this says, and, and I'll evolve my thinking, you know, four minutes after I said it, maybe what this says is that they're not getting information that Trumpism isn't going to do well in 24 or 22 even. But maybe you can still be a Trump Republican and disagree with what happened on January 6th. Maybe Trumpism has degrees, right? There are obviously supporters of former President Trump who were not only at the Capitol, but also supported it from home or supported it after the fact or don't think the, the election is legitimate, but they believe in all the other things that he talked about. And maybe there's a way for someone like a Mike Pence to say what happened on January 6th is wrong because no one really cares about it. And, and I'm still in the Trump camp or believe in the Trump ideology, but I'm not going to go out there and support January 6th. And that either doesn't matter to people or they agree. Right. I think that that's, that's to me. And and you bringing up inflation yeah. is exactly right. I um, Last week I sat down with Representative Ro Khanna and I'm, I'm writing something about him. I wrote something about him. It will come out uh, in a few weeks. And I think he's super smart. And he just came out with a book uh, called Dignity in a Digital Age. It's out. You guys should read it. It's super interesting. I feel like everyone who listens to this podcast would find something interesting in it. But uh, he's a rising star in the Democratic Party. He's a very interesting guy because he's definitely progressive. He's was very nice about President Biden and what he's doing, but he also ran Bernie Sanders' campaign, and he represents a district in Silicon Valley that has Apple and Intel and lots of tech billionaires, but he's also calling for regulating them. So he's like a very interesting guy who I think has beliefs um, that don't always fall into one bucket or one kind of party line. And he his whole point, the thesis of the book, is that like you have to have a story around the economy, and he has a specific story around the economy that he's trying to push. But um, I think maybe someone like Mike Pence is saying, hey, these the numbers are saying Trump's message about the economy works and it appeals to people, even though it is a very doomsday view of the economy. It's a dystopian negative view of the economy. It's still a story about the economy. Dem Democrats have not been able to come up with a story around the economy, even though the economy is excellent. And... I think that maybe that's what they're banking on is like we can we can do the right thing in this one specific area around January 6th and it won't matter because we have a very good captivating message about the economy, which is an issue on which people actually vote. Yes. And that is a big central dialogue or you know debate that has to happen within the Democratic Party about trying to uh, mitigate you know that message by how can we talk, to the working class or, or the, you know, middle class about uh, the economy in a way 
that sort of makes them not feel like the Democrats are alienating them. Yeah, right? you have to have a story. And, um, you know, I, I got a call this week from this guy, uh, Roy uh, Texiera, who's uh, somebody I was trying to have on the podcast, and we will have on the podcast uh, at some point. But he's sort of uh, making the argument and that Democrats have lost their connection to a certain class of voter and that they need to figure out how to, I don't want to say, like, stop talking about the progressive agenda, but figure out a way to thread the needle or th- figure out a way to talk to, you know, the middle of the country. That's a tall order. But um, just quickly back to, you know, whether Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell and what some Republicans are going to be doing, like, let's hold on to Trumpism, but not embrace January 6th. Well, that's threading the needle. But I saw this, um, uh, there's a political scientist who was quoted in the Times recently talking about what is it that Mitch McConnell and Mike Pence might have been doing. And they call it a semi-loyalist swerve, <laughs> right? And this is sort of like where you uh, denounce January 6th, but then later on you're ambiguous about it and you keep kind of going back and forth so that you can maintain some sort of footing, which is kind of what I think these guys are doing because they've never been consistent in criticizing Trump for what happened on that day. And I just want to take it all the way for a minute about what it is ultimately that we're seeing. January 6th and Trumpism, that was really the end of the GOP as a political party. And there's a lot of people who seem to be in denial about it, right? I mean, Mitch McConnell is pretending that he can still treat his own party like a legitimate political institution, when in fact, it's basically a terrorist organization at this point. And they don't want it to be that way. Nobody does. I mean, wouldn't we all love to have just regular old Republicans back, you know, arguing about low taxes, but it's not that. And that's why the January 6th commission thing is so fascinating to me, because it's a drip, drip, drip of information, not just about what was Trump doing and what were his, what was he doing on the phone during January 6th, but the idea that they would put it, these fake electors, right, that they would send in like a fake report on what they, how their state voted. Illegal, right? Or these oath keepers and people that they're starting to prosecute who are basically seditionists, you know, who are basically radical domestic terrorists, right? That they're in league with them, right? And that they were inflaming them on purpose, I think that is going to be a pretty powerful counter-narrative to the inflation story uh, going forward. How powerful? We don't know. But that's kind of where I see things going right now. You know, hearing you say this, I I think that, like, I barely remember January 6th. And it's very possible. I I believe I was 12 weeks pregnant. So it is very possible that that is why. And it may be that I, like, disassociated with what was happening because it was too horrific for me to pay attention to at that very delicate period of time. But yes. I have no memory of it. I, I like kind of mem- remember it happening in the moment, but I have a, an excellent memory. I can recall like every interaction I've had over the last five years in reporting this. And I just like, kind of don't remember it. Uh, and I wonder if other people have that feeling or if it's way more visceral to other people. If people were so upset by it that they were not able to fully engage with it, 
like I was, or if, if it was more visceral for other people. So if anyone listening to this has, has something similar to what I have, I'm so curious if this is just my particular set of circumstances or if everyone felt like this is almost too painful to watch, so I can't totally sink into it. Uh, it's funny because there have been periods where it kind of disappears from my mind and I forget about it. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll go on Twitter or, you know, flip on cable news and they'll they'll recycle some footage, right? Yeah. Liz Cheney posted some – when the political discourse comment came out from the GOP, uh, Liz Cheney posted some video images like, is this legitimate political discourse? And it just showed these like brutal beatings of these cops like, you know, by these mobs of just maniacs and being – and spraying them with pepper spray and just this guy crying out – uh, for help and being mobbed and beaten. And it, when you see it, because there's so much variety of that kind of footage floating out right there, it's hard to get numb to it when you see it again. And uh, it does, it almost revives the feeling of like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. I mean, how many years did it take this country to kind of like, kind of distance itself from the horror of 9-11? A long time. And I do feel like there's there's still some level in which we're still grappling with it nationally. I mean, this January 6th commission is one thing, but I feel like everybody has not been able to fully digest what it was, you know, and denial or kind of you can just forget about it. But and people tell themselves stories that it was just nothing. It was just like a, you know, a little rally gone wrong and there yeah. wasn't much to it. But when you start to see all the pieces coming together, and we're seeing you know stuff on the cover of the New York Times right now, uh, just about where was Trump in his phone logs, you know, and now we learn that one of his little evil genius, kind of, you know, he does things that you don't know if they're evil genius or he's just like got this weird habit and he's just a thing he does, but they can't put his phone logs together because he just would grab other people's phones and make calls all day. And we should talk about this just as an aside. That Maggie Haberman's book just yeah, I saw the cover. T- yeah, it's a pretty great cover. A book's called Confidence Man, and um, the first sort of report coming out of it is that we we learn that Trump has been uh, that during his time as the president, he was taking all of his documents and tearing them to shreds and trying to flush them down the toilet, and they'd have to unclog them, right? Bring in the house, the White House plumbers, to unclog the toilet of all these like uh, documents. So. You know what's so cool about the about this book that I'm really excited for, and I, I hope everyone pre-orders it. And what's so cool, and I think really speaks to this era, and makes on the cover is as big as the title. And what a yeah. cool time to be in that that a reporter would be the selling point to a book. I just find that really cool, and she obviously deserves it, and her reporting speaks for itself, and that's why she's able to do that. But I thought that was a very cool choice and says a lot about this era of journalism and reporters becoming rock stars and uh, all the hard work that a lot of our colleagues put in over the last half decade and made such a big difference in this very confusing, troubling, exhausting time. Well, yeah, her report specifically when we would get these Friday afternoon Mm – you know, huge, deep dive drama. Uh, they were almost like uh, White House noir, you know, Raymond Chandler. Really? It was just you'd take you way behind the scenes into all the bizarre things going on. They were both, you know, delicious and horrifying uh, reads. And, you know, she became 
and ha- is to this day a, a divisive character for a lot of people, Maggie Haberman. I mean, she got so close to everybody, and the reason she was so deep in as a reporter uh, is because she had relationships with all these people, and of course, she gets attacked for that because people. Well, think I also she's, think she's a woman, and uh, being a woman reporter point. on Twitter is very difficult. Yeah, it's, it's a very brutal difficult out there. thing. She's incredibly. And she became an incredibly public figure because she was in there and being a female public figure, reporting on yes. some of the the stories that people felt most strongly about on both sides. It's a very difficult place to be. And oh, she walked an incredibly tight line. And by the way, as soon as I saw the cover yeah. and I saw the title, Confidence Man, okay, everybody knows what a confidence man is. It's con man. And... When she, for the last many years, as she was the top reporter on the White House beat in the country, mm-hmm. she took all that heat, like you said, for being a woman, for, you know, people thought she wasn't being uh, strenuously partisan enough in the way that she presented information or she showed skepticism towards what Democrats might be saying. And of course, she caught all kinds of heat. But at the end of the day, my question about this Maggie Haberman book has always gonna, was this. Is she finally going to come in with an interpretation? Is she going to come down and say what it all meant and say, okay, I saw it all. You know, I was front row. I got every bit of texture you can imagine. So what does it mean? And at the end of the day, you look at that title, Confidence Man. Now we know. And I think the sub line, you know, the subhead of that is that the breaking of America. Right. So now we know, and it was obvious to anybody on the outside who was horrified looking at the Trump administration that this was happening. But she's she's clearly presenting all of this reporting she did as a really definitive narrative with a point on it. I cannot wait. And Maggie is a buddy of mine. And I hope I pray across all of our fingers and toes and arms and legs that she will come on this podcast and talk about this book when it's time. And I'm I'm just going to be on the edge of my seat until we get to read it. I'm praying for an advanced copy. Hey, you know what else is hotly anticipated or hotly debated while we're on this topic? Several states, including two states that you and I live in, are lifting their indoor mask mandate. And... Uh, I mean, some cities, I think L.A. is going to be behind and New York City is going to be not totally maskless. I think there's there's some restrictions that will happen and same thing with L.A. And I'm so interested in this. I really feel like over the last two weeks, you've really started to, to hear a narrative turn, particularly around kids in schools. Uh, we saw two politicians here in California. We saw Governor Newsom and, and Mayor Garcetti without masks posing at the NFC championship game and caught a ton of heat that they were able to take their masks off and make choices for themselves while kids in school are required to wear masks. I know that that debate is happening all over the country. And it's fascinating to me. I think it's it's fascinating because uh, as much as we were talking about the economy being such a deciding factor in the midterms, I really feel like school is going to be another one. And I think Democrats used to be the party of good schooling and education and teachers and making sure kids were taken care of and looked after. And I feel like they are on the verge of losing that with COVID restrictions. And, and rightly or wrongly, 
I think that mm-hmm. they have not found a message on it that is resonating with moms. And so much of the Democrats' success over the last two election cycle has been with in speaking to moms and, and particularly speaking to them, saying you cannot vote for someone like President Trump. I do not think that they have had a message to say to them about COVID and about their kids in schools. And what is happening is you have Democrats messaging around all, I mean, Republicans messaging around all these kinds of culture issues around school. You have critical race theory. You have what DeSantis is doing in Florida with the anti-gay speech in schools that's putting teachers in a terrible position and giving parents the ability to take legal action against any teacher who says something that is what they deem as inappropriate, even though it is completely ill-defined or underdefined in, in what DeSantis is talking about. But I think Democrats are on the verge of not becoming the party that is leading in education. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And, and I think now, maybe, you, maybe it starts with masks. Yeah. And what you mean by that is a parent's they don't want the masks on the children anymore. And I think, I, I mean, it really, obviously it's such a personal decision, but but the conversations I am starting to hear, and it, it's, it goes on both sides, is that parents are wondering, is it doing more harm than good mm-hmm. at this point when most children are vaccinated or required to be vaccinated to be in school and the infection rate in children has been minimal? unless there's something with a pre-existing condition or you have family members who have pre-existing conditions, that kids are not getting COVID as severely as, as older people in general. And now that they are vaccinated, what is the, the social emotional toll of having kids in masks for yeah. eight hours a day, particularly when adults are allowed to go and eat in restaurants, go to concerts, go to sporting events, go to gyms, mm-hmm. all these things without masks. And yet our kids who are not as at risk to get infected or are required to wear masks in school. I don't, I don't have a school age kid, so I don't feel like I can speak to this as effectively as you, as you can. But I will tell you, I've been so careful with our now seven month old. We we basically live in a bubble, and she's obviously not able to be vaccinated yet. Though maybe that changes with Pfizer's announcement uh, yesterday. A seven month old's immune system is not what a seven year old's immune system is. We've been so careful, but she's now awake to the world. And I took her to the doctor to get a flu shot booster yesterday. And I think it was the first time that she's seen me in a mask that she realized that something was covering her mom's face. And she was like so mad about it. She was like, what is, she obviously can't talk, but like, she kept being like, what, who, what is happening here? Yeah. Why are you doing that? What are you doing? Like it was, she was like genuinely angry about me wearing a mask Mm -hmm. and I can't imagine what that would feel like if that were my daughter for for two years, and if that if she was limited in her connection with me for the fifteen minutes we went to the doctor, what would I feel? And I don't know the answer because I have not felt this, but what would I feel if that were her reaction with everybody in the world every day? Yeah. So I ask you, who has three children who are mm-hmm. older and vaccinated and in school, yeah. how you feel about this? Okay, well, I don't want to uh, cause a lot of controversy here, but I will anyway. Do it. I'm done. I'm done with the masks. Okay. I'm over it. I think okay. it's a good decision. Okay. You know, I mean, vaccines work. Yes. They may not prevent you from getting it, but they, they probably prevent you from dying. Yes. The message has been out there for months and months and months. Get vaccinated. Get a booster. Yeah. If you want to live, then do it. Yeah. 
Okay. And everybody got the message. And if you cared and if you agreed with it, then you went out and did it. All my kids are vaccinated. We're vaccinated. We're getting my twins who just turned 12 are going to be boosted. Happy um, birthday to your twins, by the way. Big birthday thank week over you. here. Thank you. And, you know, um, I think, yeah, there's it's it's about time to for the Democrats. And I don't mean this just politically, although there's a political upside to it, obviously, is uh, they need to be seen as comprehending that we live in a risk society. Right. They can't be finger wagging ninnies, you know, telling you, oh, you've got to always be with the science and everything and everybody worrying all the time. Okay, well, that was great. And it's I think it was the right thing to do from day one. And of course, it wasn't done from day one because it started under Trump. But we have arrived at a moment where we know enough about this virus that it's going to ebb and flow, that we can create vaccines in the cost-benefit analysis of our society, I think you're right that we the kids need to um, be able to see each other. They need to see each other's face. They need to not think of a mass as like, this is what life's going to be like, you know, for the next, you know, infinite number of years. And um, I guess I'm I'm ready for it to end. You know, I today I went to my little uh, coffee hut that I go to. Uh, every day uh, in my town. And, you know, it's just a little, you know, coffee truck. And the lady opens the the little sliding glass window to take my order. And uh, she wasn't wearing a mask today. It was the first time I'd ever seen her. Wow. I always, I, I see her with the mask every day. I go, I'll have my, you know, my coffee. And uh, today I saw her and I was like, wow, she's a college student. I was like, hello, <laughs> you know, great to see you. Really, like literally, great to see you for the first time. And just the power of a small thing like that. Totally. You know, is is so important. Because, you know, if you think about this, as a society, we haven't been able to see each other politically. Mm. <laughs> we haven't been able to look at each other. We haven't been able to humanize each other. Mm. And when these masks come down, I mean, that's going to be a huge humanizing effect. It's going to have a major... I think, um, impact on the way people feel about each other and the way they interact in businesses and in schools and and on the streets, right? And uh, I think that could have a, a game-changing effect even on the political fortunes of Democrats, certainly, but on the environment of this next election in general. That's such a great point. I never thought about that before. We have been in a period of such disconnection for a number of reasons for a really long time now. Uh, I think the Trump era was the most divisive era in the history of ever. And we came out of that mercifully just as we were becoming disconnected in every other way. And so we haven't had a post-Trump reconnection. And I think I think it's absolutely necessary. And I don't think that we are going to necessarily get away from Trumpism and the reasons why there was Trumpism in the first place just because life will resume in a, I'm not going to say post-COVID because I don't think we'll be post-COVID, but sort of like an endemic phase of what's about to happen. I don't think that suddenly all the ills of society will go away, but I think it will be, there will be some sort of humanity in a way we haven't experienced in many, many years now. And I think that that's, that's a great, you, you started this off by, by talking about a thawing and I feel like that's the real thaw here, right? Mm-hmm. 
That's yeah. the real thought. Well, that's and I think also thinking about the midterms because we're doing a lot of that on this podcast and in the news business. Thinking about you know what looks like an inevitable uh, thumping by Republicans across state and you know legislatures and state in uh, Senate and Congress. Just the removal of the mask debate as a political subject is going to allow other things to be debated. So that also is going to be, you know, it, it frees up us, frees us up in that way too. I mean, well, we can debate inflation and other things, but there's, but there's, you know, there's a lot going on in this country. And I think uh, to your point, if by September we come around and a lot of these mandates have changed, we've, we've, and we, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, don't have some new variant or something that comes along and scares us again. But if kids aren't wearing masks in September, that's going to change uh, the temperature, uh, political temperature in the country and make totally. thing, they, it's going to be a different midterm than people are thinking about now. I think, I think parents will still be mad. I think that the, the residual anger will still exist, but I think it will not be uh, present anger. I think residual anger is very different than present anger. And I think, look, I, the reality is I think COVID's been over in most of the country for a lot longer than, yes. than you and I could ever imagine. And yep. uh, we live in places where people are exceptionally well-read and where people are Democrats. And uh, it's, a, it's a very different existence than in, in much of the country. But I think even in the places where you and I live, we are getting towards an endemic point in this in this virus. And I also think we're learning enough about wh- where the virus stands at this point to feel comfortable in taking calculated risks that work for your family and work for yeah. your household and work for you as individuals. And I think you're completely right about what this could mean for the midterms to have this. It's not not the number one issue. And also it allows the government to start working on the things that matter, tackling really tackling supply chain, really tackling, you know, what could happen in Congress and um, priorities for things that actually speak to voters in the fall of, of 2022. It's fascinating. Yeah. And I know, I know that these are things that you and I will keep talking about here. You have some very exciting conversations coming up the next week or two, Joe. I'm really excited. And for anyone who needs a little bit of a palate cleanser, that Bob Weir interview, I cannot wait to go read it. And I can, now I want to. All I want to do is go watch his TikTok. Oh man, it's a, it's very entertaining. It was shocking to me when I first saw him because he he reloads them on Instagram, and I do follow him on Instagram. Cool. And I I saw him on there, and it was like you know, had the little TikTok logo, and he was doing some lunges with his TRX bands, you know. Right. And I and I just was like, is this happening? This is like a weird dream. And then I started to explore it, and then I asked him about it, of course. And his uh, he's got like a security man when he goes out mm-hmm. on tour, and that's his mm-hmm. trainer. And so they he's also his trainer, and. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like I did something wrong here. Uh, you know, to, in, in terms of the thawing and the opening up of the world, let me just mention this as an aside because yes. it's kind of a nice thing. The He's got a record coming out. He's got a group called the Wolf Brothers and uh, the Wolf Bros. And the bass player is Don Was, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago. And um, the record they're coming out is a recording of the first show they did last August when they came out of the first wave of the pandemic and they could play live again. And so they're going back on tour this March. And so 
a great barometer of like where we are in terms of our ability to go out and enjoy each other's company again is live music. Right, mm. and so for the the Grateful Dead's uh, or Grateful Dead adjacent uh, groups going around in the world is a good sign, right? And um, I agree. I will say this: two last things. So I'll just throw out some like good news and to think about on that right. point. I saw um, a great artist the other day live in an actual club with Whoa. people in it. And uh, it was Kate LeBon is her name, and she's an amazing um, sort of indie, you know, singer, songwriter. But um, mm. and you could look her up. Uh, she is Welsh, and she named herself after Simon LeBon of Duran Duran. Mm-hmm. That's why. Her, and she's cool. a she's an interesting, odd, quirky person. But just to be in a club, right, with lots of people rocking out. There was a bar, beer was going back and forth across the bar. You cannot believe what a refreshing thing this was. Ugh, it sounds like it heaven. Was, it was, I was just sitting there and when they were handing me the beer and I was getting a water for my wife and I just was pulling them across the bar, I was like, oh God, yes, thank you. This is what I've been missing is just being in the world, you know? And, you know, of course we had some gallows humor is like, oh, is this a super spreader event? Totally. We're going to get COVID. But everybody's wearing masks and you're doing the best you can. And at some point you're saying to yourself, well, fuck it. You know what I mean? I just, yes. this is what I need. I need to live. I need to be alive. So there, there is, there's a calculated life matrix that you have to run yourself through and say, is this a time where I could potentially risk getting sick? Am I going to expose people who, who can't take that risk right now? And is this worth, if I'm, am I going to get home and I'm going to potentially be inside for 10 days? Is that, is that worth that for me? And, and you just have to ask yourself those questions. I know we're winding down here, but I have a last question for you. Please. Oscar nominations just came out. Mm-hmm. And I just want to um, say two things. And I want your opinion on if you're paying Tell attention me. to it. I'm paying attention um, to Oscar stuff, yes. Uh, we've had John Chu, director John Chu, on here a couple times. Yes. And he was with his editor, Myron Kirstein. Myron Kirstein is an old friend of mine. He's a film editor, and he just was nominated for an Oscar for Tick, so Tick, exciting. Boom. Yep. So big shout out to him because it's like, you know, how often do you get to like you know, end up knowing somebody who gets nominated for an Oscar? It's a great yep. feeling to know somebody. You knew them when, you know. Very cool. Uh, but I'm also totally pissed that Alana Hyam did not get nominated for Licorice Pizza. That is a crime. Well, you just know I love those crime. sisters. I love those sisters so much. And Me too. It's super fun and to see. And that movie her. is so good. Well, I love I love the valley. I have to say, I didn't make it through the whole movie, but that has nothing to do with the movie. It has everything to do with me. <laughs> and I find it really hard to watch movies at home. I really miss going to the movie theater. I cannot pay attention to movies at our house. But but one movie I did pay attention to, and this is it's my friend's movie, and um, she got nominated. It got nominated for best picture and for best original screenplay. It's a movie called Coda. Did you see it? I did not. Oh, my God. Joe, hang up with me. Tell me me to watch it. Go watch it. It is, even talking about it, I well up with tears. I mean, just go watch it. I'm not even going to sell it. It sells itself. It is the movie with the most heart. Lee Lee had seen it uh, before I saw it because um, Sean Heater, who is the writer and director of it, is his partner on his show, Little America. They write it together. So he had seen a very early version of it. And um, 
we both watched it and we just looked at each other and at the end of the movie and we were sobbing. Like both of us wow. just in total puddle of tears. It's incredible. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal movie. Go watch it. Um, so that got do- nominated and, and I'm so excited. And then um, my friend Phil Lord got nominated for another Oscar and he's a listener of the podcast. So congrats. We're so excited for you. And congratulations to Myron, my friend. This is a, a nice way to... Uh, to, end it. to draw I'm gonna go, down. I'm going to go wake up JR and tell her about all of the, the exciting things that we talked about on this podcast. And uh, we will see you right here next week. Oh, we're going to, we've got something incredibly interesting next week. So I'm not going to say anything about it. Just no, come back next week for, it's worth for it. something special. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Inside the Hive. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Joe Hagen. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And, of course, our wonderful producer, Brett Fuchs. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them any way you support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. Thank you.